before I start, I want to um, clarify something that was said last night. Um, I often leave out things that might be very important. And uh, in that message that I was conveying from the Master about the darshan lines and so forth, um, I should have mentioned that if he said, when we were talking about this, if people need to talk things over with me, they can come to India. The India groups will not uh, be changed because there will be smaller groups of people in them and it will be more feasible to um, give people interviews the way that we are used to. Which does not mean that the, the Darshan line way is not going to have its own advantages. There is a, another point too, of course, that I also forgot to mention, and that is that um, the tours from now on will largely be open to people from all over the world. Up until now, or I should say in the last 10, 12 years, the tours have been only open to the people in the place where the master has gone. Thus, at Saint Bani in 1990, only North Americans were allowed, with few exceptions that the master made himself. Similarly, um, last year in South America, only South Americans were allowed. But, and in fact, they were divided up by country originally, but the master said very specifically that he wasn't going to do that anymore, that the longing was too great, and uh, who knows how much he's going to be able to tour and how many different places he's going to be able to go. So that's another factor which um, affects numbers too. I want to start by reading this. We referred to this the other night. This is the parable of the unjust steward, okay? or depending on how you translate it, dishonest manager. This is in connection with what we were saying last night about helping the master out, doing his work various ways. Or we could say forgiveness or love as a form of seva, a form of direct personal seva to him. Okay. Then Jesus, this is from the Gospel of Luke also. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager or steward and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended, he praised the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. 
for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. The master commended him, praised him, which doesn't make sense unless we understand that the manager was doing what the master wanted. That by falsifying the accounts, by cutting back on the amount owed, he was doing his master's work. And that is what we are doing when we forgive each other's sins. We forgive people, and in forgiving, we emulate the person who comes only to forgive, and we make his work easier. I think this is an excerpt from a talk that Santa Jeb Singh has given, which is on the same subject and clarifies it very much. This is, I love this story and have often read it, and I'm sure that uh, you have all heard it, but nonetheless, it's worth repeating. When Supreme Father Kripal left the body of five elements, he came in the will of God and he left in the will of God. But when he left his physical body, this poor Ajayb wept very much in his remembrance. When I was weeping, one person came to me and said, You have always said that you should never cry or weep when anyone leaves the body, because just by weeping or crying for someone, you cannot bring that person back. You have always said that, but now you yourself are crying. You are a wise person. Why are you crying? At that time, I was in deep pain. I could not talk very properly, but still I told him the story. It was like this. I told him that there was once a king who decided to go on a tour to some other states, to some other kingdoms. He told his queen that he was going on the tour. When he went, he did not really go on the tour. After some time, he just came back, canceling his tour. But his wife, the queen, was in love with another man. And when the king had gone for the tour, she had already made arrangements with this man she loved, saying, The king has now gone on tour, and he will not come for some days. So you come, and we will enjoy. But when the king came back, at that time the queen and the other man were enjoying and sleeping together. When the king came there, he was surprised to see that there was another man with the queen. How could another man come into the palace? But when he saw that the other man was with his wife, and they both were sleeping naked, he did not get upset. He did not show that he was there, and they did not know that the king had come back. The king simply took off his shawl and covered them with it, and he went into the other room. Now, when both of them woke up, the queen was terrified to see the king's shawl over them, and she thought that now the king would give her punishment because the king had seen all that they had done, because this was the shawl of the king, and nobody else would have come and covered them with the shawl except him. So when the queen thought of that, she became very afraid. But the king did not mention anything about that to the queen, even though they met many times after that and lived together for many years, the king never mentioned anything about that to the queen. After some years, when the king's end time came, he called his sons, gave the successorship to the sons, and then he told his sons that they should respect their mother and obey her. Take good care of her. She is a good woman. Do whatever she tells you. And then he transferred some property and things for the expenses of the queen also. But when the king was saying all these things to his sons, they should take care of their mother, etc., the queen started weeping and went on weeping very bitterly. 
The king asked her, Why are you weeping now? I have transferred so much property in your name, and you will be comfortable when I die. What else do you want? Why are you weeping? She said, I am not weeping for any wealth. I am crying because now, when you are leaving, who will come and throw the shawl over me? Who will hide my faults? So I told the dear one that that was why I was weeping. I told him that when the beloved master was in the physical form, he used to hide my faults. He used to forgive me for my faults. Even now, when he has gone back to Sachkhand in his radiant form, he is showering grace on me and he is forgiving me and hiding my faults. But when you have the physical form of the master in front of you, you can express what is in your heart. You can go and weep at his feet. And this is really the point, you see. Um, the Master comes to forgive. It's also been said that he comes to love, but we have pointed out that there isn't really very much difference. Forgiving is one form of loving. The Master comes to forgive and he takes delight in forgiving and in not exposing our faults. He enjoys us regardless of what our faults are and he does not delight in exposing them. He may inform us about them so that we can work on them and fix them. That's another thing. Sometimes if, you know, as, as brothers and sisters, it sometimes happens that we get very excited about exposing each other's faults. Sometimes only mentally, sometimes outwardly too. If we remember these stories, when we feel like that, no matter how justified it may seem, if we remember that if we, if we enjoy doing that, or if we don't like to think that we enjoy it, but we do it anyway, that we are doing Carl's work. The Master is not interested in hurting people in any way, in making them feel bad. His way is not to confront, not to humiliate, but to love and in the course of loving to bring out from within each of us that love which is already there. And when that happens, the faults tend to fall off by themselves. And that is the way the Master works. I mean, he may, he's certainly free, as free a person as there is in the universe, and he may do anything he wants. I don't, I don't say that, um, that he can be confined to any one particular course of activity, but normally he will work this way. And it is astonishing what he accomplishes by working that way, sometimes going wildly against the expectations of other people who may have their own understanding and their own ideas of what ought to be happening in regard to the person with the faults. If we understand that we are doing his work, you know, Swamiji Maharaj says in the Sarbhajan that if the master is displeased with the disciple, the other disciples should not also act displeased with him. 
it behooves the disciples to plead to the master for forgiveness for the disciple that he seems to be displeased with. Sometimes satsangis think they see that the master seems to be rebuking someone and they all want to jump on the bandwagon. Get them too, I guess. It's not like that. The master has his reasons for doing what he's doing. Unless we can see from his point of view and share in those reasons the way that he does, um, then imitating him is, is useless. In fact, it's impossible. There is a story that um, Cuckoo used to tell. She was the princess Devinder Birkar Narendra, who lived at Sawanashram with um, with Master Kripal Singh and, of course, a great many other people. And she told me, she was close to the Master, and she told me um, a story of, of uh, two people who decided they would follow the Master around and imitate everything that he had done, that this was the purpose of their life, and they were just going to imitate him. So they followed the master one place and another, and he talked to somebody, and they talked to somebody, and he did this, and he did that. And then he went into a factory and took a cup of molten metal and drank it. And their imitation ended at that point. And really, that's what the master, I mean, until we can share in the drinking of the molten metal, we can't really share in the, in the doing of that which he does. Right? We are, our aim should be, our purpose should be to reach that point where we can do the things that he does from within in the same way that he does. That's a very valid aim. But to try to imitate him outwardly in the, in the specific things that he does is not particularly helpful. The, um, I want to read another story, but um, well, this is the story. Anyway, this is a story from Baba Sawan Singh, and it sheds light on that particular point, among other things. The story of Bai Gurdas. Okay. Bhai Gurdas was the uncle of Guru Arjan, and at the same time, his devoted disciple and a highly spiritual person. At one time, he composed the following couplets and read them to the Guru Sahib. If a mother is impious, it is not for her son to punish her. If a cow swallows a diamond, her stomach should not be cut open. If a husband is not faithful, the wife should never copy him. If a king issues leather money, his subjects should not worry. If a high caste lady takes to wine, people should not take it ill. If the guru tests his disciple, the disciple's faith should not waver. Guru Arjan listened attentively as Bhai Gurdas read. When he had finished, the guru thought to himself, all these things are easier said than done. Let me test his faith. Turning to Bhai Gurdas, he said, Uncle, I have to buy some horses at Kabul. Will you be able to do this for me? Why, certainly, Bhai Gurdas replied. At that time, there was no paper or small silver money. Only gold sovereigns were legal tender. Accordingly, Guru Arjan Dev filled several bags with sovereigns. Bhai Gurdas counted them 
and then sealed the bags and put them in strong wooden boxes. These were loaded on mules, and by Gurdas, with a number of other disciples, started out on the long and arduous journey to Kabul from Lahore, where Guru Arjan was then residing. Kabul, of course, is the city that is the present-day capital of Afghanistan. It's in the mountains and uh, quite a distance both uh, across the surface and also high up from uh, Lahore, which is in the Punjab in, in present-day Pakistan. Bhai Gurdas was a very learned scholar and quite familiar with the Sikh scriptures. And because of this, he gave religious discourses in many of the villages through which their little caravan passed. In due time, after passing through the awe-inspiring defiles of the Khyber Pass, they reached Kabul, high amidst the snow-capped Hindu Kush, and pitched their tents on the outskirts of the city. In the great horse market of this ancient city, Bhai Gurdas bargained with the Patan horse traders and finally purchased the best animals he could find. These were taken in charge by a group of the disciples who were to take the horses by easy stages to Guru Arjan at Lahore. Meanwhile, Bhai Gurdas asked the Patan merchants to come to his tent to be paid. Leaving the dealers outside, Bhai Gurdas entered the tent to get the needed number of bags filled with gold sovereigns. Opening a few of the boxes, he took out the needed bags, but something was wrong. Filled with foreboding, he opened all the bags. Each and every one of them was filled with pebbles and stones instead of gold. Bhai Gurdas was beside himself with horror, for he knew the savage nature of the Patans. There they are, waiting for me outside the tent, and I have nothing with which to pay them. They will tear me to pieces. His brain worked like lightning as he tried to devise a plan to save himself. So great was his fright that he even forgot to ask his Satguru for help. He then decided that the only possible way to save himself was to tear the back of the tent, escape through the hole, and run away as fast as he could. This he did, and by great good fortune was not caught. Ashamed to face Guru Arjan, he passed quickly through Lahore, left Amritsar behind, and made his way to Kashi hundreds of miles to the east. Meanwhile, the members of his party who were in Kabul entered his tent to discover why did he delay in paying the Patan horse dealers. They found all of the wooden boxes open and filled with gold, but there was not a sign of Bhai Gurdas. They noticed, however, that there was a hole in the back of the tent. To stop the clamoring of the Patans, the disciples paid them and then made their way back to Lahore, where they told Guru Arjan all that had happened. And this kind of a long process of Bhai Gurdas getting back, which I won't read, but he does get back to the Guru. And when he finally completed his journey and stood before Guru Arjan, the Guru said, Bhai Saab, please repeat those couplets you read to me just before I asked you to go to Kabul. But Bhai Gurdas, having been tested and put through some bitter experiences, to try his love and faith, fell at the guru's feet and exclaimed, If a mother gives poison to her son, who will save him? If the watchman breaks into the house, who can protect it? If a guide misleads the traveler, who can set him on the right path? If the fence starts to eat the crop, who can save it? Even so, if guru tests the disciples, who can help them to remain steadfast? Well, I've always found that story very interesting. And the reason that I find it interesting is because um, I've been in that situation. And um, my normal reaction is to make a hole in the back of the tent and go out. I would have done exactly what Vaigurdas did. And I think most of us probably would have.
uh, it's a, a study in, of course, illusion, in the way things seem, and in the difficulty, which we should not discount, and therefore should not feel mean or judgmental about ourselves if we fail things of this sort. This was, I mean, this particular test, not really a test from any objective point of view. It was a foregone conclusion as to what would happen. When the masters speak of tests this way, they're talking about something that brings home to the disciple the true nature of reality. Okay? Guru Bhagirdas, excuse me, was writing couplets from a level which he had not reached. He was a very spiritual and wise person, and he continued to have a very distinguished career. And his compositions, called the um, Vars of Bhagirdas, are considered to be the key to the Guru Granth Sahib. Sanchi has said that and has actually given um, a series of commentaries on them which were intended to be a book and may someday uh, be published, although they have not, um, they're somewhere in limbo right at the moment and the, the uh, transcription does not exist. So Bhagavadas was a really, I mean, he was, he was not a phony, he was not a bad person either. He meant well, and he had accomplished something. But he had not accomplished as much as he thought he had. And he was writing, really, those first couplets are cliches, you know, and not very true, really, in many ways. And kind of complacent. And he thought, according to the story, that um, that was the truth. And the guru showed him that when, when the crunch was on, that, it, that he, he wasn't able to live on the level, even on the flawed level, that he had written from. And of course, the, if we read the story carefully, the gold was always gold. It just appeared to be rocks when Bhagavad looked at it. And I would suggest that this, this is an important part of the story, that, um, you know, there's a, there's a feeling, kind of a, a, a consensus, I guess, among many people in the world. And here we get back to some of the things we were saying the other night about the, the uh, way in which there's this almost absurd reversal of things so that the little flock does end up with the kingdom, and uh, which is hard to swallow if you're looking at it from the other point of view. There is a consensus that if, you know, you have um, a higher and a lower, or an idealistic, excuse me, an idealistic and a practical say, that the lower is invariably the realer. It's like normally the position would be that the gold was the illusion and the rocks were real. In fact, it was, of course, the other way around. When Bhagirdas looked at those objects and saw rocks, he was the one who was being deluded. The disciples who came in and paid the patans with gold saw what was really there. And yet in all kinds of examples, we do tend to assume that the other is true. If there is a choice to make, for example, if we are looking at someone's behavior and there is a one way to explain it that involves respect and dignity and concern and another way to explain it that involves ulterior motives lesser lesser things and so forth 
then we will invariably opt for the lower. We will assume that it can't be the higher. And we do that throughout. And it's part of what I was talking about the other day with the, um, the therapist that I used to go to who talked when I went to him when I had such deep doubt about the path in my first year on it. And he explained to me about sawing off the limb that we're on. And then he asked me to meditate with him. It's something like that. The, uh, we always have the option of selecting, maybe not consciously, but the option is there of selecting the angle of vision from which we choose to look. And the more that we are connected with the Master, and the more we are saturated with his words and his thoughts and his bhajans and his teachings, then the more likely it is that we will see things the way he does. And in reality, you know, everything about the path is meant to enable us to see the world the way he does. The more we see it that way, the easier everything becomes. When he looks at us, after all, he does not see what we see when we look at each other. He sees what we really are. He also sees um, outside of time. That is, and this can explain some occasionally puzzling things that the Master may do or say. He sees us, the past, present, and future are like length and width and height to him. I mean, he sees us within the dimension of time. That is, the time is one of the dimensions along with our, our length, our height, etc. And um, therefore, he knows, you know, the whole thing about us. He knows where we have come from and where we are going. He knows what we have done and why we have done it. And he loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. And I, I think one of the most crucial moments of my life was when I had a, a simultaneous revelation, both of how deeply the Master sees and also of how totally he loves. He sees what we really are, and he does not turn away in disgust. He comes closer and has more love. And he knows what we were born to be. He knows that we really are, in fact, in reality, children of God. He sees us as gold. We tend to see each other as rocks. And the rocks are not the reality. The gold is the reality. But, you know, the other part of that story, I don't want to mitigate how difficult it can be to do everything perfectly. I know I don't have to introduce anyone to that concept. That Most people have found this out for themselves. But... There are points of view from which we could say that, that what is asked of us is difficult. Okay? It's hard. And um, the Master knows that very well. There is the growth process happens in the course of doing our best to accomplish that which perhaps we cannot accomplish, you know, which, or at least we can accomplish it with help only. But the fact is that if we fail, ultimately it doesn't matter. The Master continues to love us, and he continues to give us that which we need so that we can make the right choice next time. There is a, one of my favorite little interchanges in any book. It's from um, 
George MacDonald's book, Lilith. Disciple is talking to his teacher who has just given him some instruction. I will try to remember, I answered, but I may forget. Then some evil that is good for you will follow. And if I remember, then some evil which is not good for you will not follow. And that's exactly how the master works. If we can have some sense, it is not ultimate. If we fail, we fail. But it is not a federal case, we used to say when I was in high school. I don't know if people still say that or not. We don't have to make a federal case out of it. We can try again. Master Kripal used to say that if, well, he would quote Kabir, oh, Kabir, the one who falls down while walking is not to be laughed at. It's the one who sits on the side and doesn't start that is in deep trouble. And then he would say that if you fall down and you pick yourself up, at least you have moved a body length farther along to where you're going. A lot of times it seems as though that's um, about the, the speed at which we're moving, but um, it's still, you see, from the master's point of view, we're going in the right direction. Sanchi tells the story, and this is a really important story, of, um, he tells it, I think, to take the pressure off, you know, of the guy, the illiterate farmer who worshipped Vishnu, and because he was not capable of learning any of the traditional names by which Vishnu was worshipped, he used the word arban, which means underpants. And he didn't know any better, Sanchi says. And Vishnu realized that this was happening and he broke up. He said to Lakshmi, I have a new devotee, someone who is worshipping me with such a name that you never heard of before in connection with me. I have to go down and see this devotee. And the thing is that that particular farmer was um, totally, he had tried very hard to meditate. He could not. He wanted very much to see Vishnu, but he could not. He considered himself a total and complete failure, and he thought that he was totally unfit for the path that he had been given. And he gave up. And Vishnu came down to see to see this particular devotee and he hid in the well. And he was watching him through the rocks in the top of the well. And a person came along and said, uh, how is your devotion going? And he said, it's, it's not, it's stupid, I can't do it anymore. I, I worship Vishnu by this name, that's true, but he doesn't care about me and I can't see him and, and uh, for all I know, he might as well be in that well. And of course, he was in that well. And at that point, Vishnu came out of the well and gave him everything that he wanted. And Sanji told that story for us, you know, I mean, he, what he was saying was, in a, in a very sweet way, that our devotion is generally about on the level of that farmer's. We may have a different idea of it, or we may not, but from the point of view of the one who is being remembered and worshipped, that's approximately where it's at. And it doesn't matter. That's the point. We do our best, no matter how pathetically bad it is, and we will still get there. 
And even if we give up in despair, we will still get there. I once, uh, the Master won't let us not, you see. I once um, wrote a letter to a friend of mine in India many years ago, during Master Kripal's lifetime, expressing complete despair over the way things were going with Satsandesh magazine, which I used to edit, and uh, various other things. And I said, um, I sometimes feel like getting on a bus and going as far as I can go. And she showed the letter to the master, which was not my plan when I had sent it to her. And she wrote back and said that she had showed it to the master, and he had said, let him run. The more he runs, the farther he runs, the closer he'll get to me. And really, that's the way it works. You see, we cannot, once the connection is made between us and the Master, it's like his love for us is such that he will use everything that we do in our best interests. He will not allow us to have things that we do used against us. He will do that out of his love for us and because he is interested, as far as we are concerned, only in taking us up. He is not interested in punishing us. He is not interested in exposing our faults. He is not interested in proving that we are wrong and he is right. He is not interested in any of the things that we normally get hung up on when we are confronted with the same kinds of problems with regard to each other. He's not interested in that. He's interested in taking us up. And if we do something, he will respond by trying to use that something in our behalf. There's the very famous story of Guru Nanak and Mardana who were walking in the Punjab and they were in a certain place and Mardana was very thirsty. And he said so to Guru Nanak, and Guru Nanak said, well, there isn't any water for a long way, but if you climb up that cliff, there is a pond up there, and that pond belongs to a man named Vali Kandari, and perhaps if you go up and ask him, he will let you drink his water. So Mardana climbed up, and Vali Kandari was there, but Vali Kandari was a yogi, um, and not a particularly altruistic or spiritual yogi. He was a very closed-in, tight guy who liked to get lots of disciples and people who called him great. So his condition for drinking the water was that you had to take initiation from him and, and publicly proclaim that he was your master. He told this to Mardana, and Mardana said, no, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I have a master. He's very great, much, much greater than you, he said, and uh, I love him, and, and I'm not interested in anyone else, and I certainly wouldn't be blackmailed into it. So Vali Kandari said, okay, you don't get any water. Mardana went back down the cliff, and he rejoined Guru Nanak, and they started off, and Mardana said, but I'm still very thirsty. Can't we do something? And Guru Nanak said, well, maybe this, maybe. Maybe he'll change his mind. He said, why don't you go back up and ask him again? Very sweetly this time, very politely, maybe he'll change his mind. Mardana was very dubious, but he went up, and, and of course, Fali Kandari did not change his mind. So he came back down and told him, no, it's just the same as before, but I'm really very thirsty. So Guru Nanak said, all right. And he used his power and changed the direction of the water that was feeding the pond so that instead of flowing into the pond, 
it f flowed down to the bottom of the cliff and came out right where they were. And it was like a spring was formed. And the pond, of course, dried up. When Vali Kandari realized what had happened, he understood uh, that the Mardana's master had done this. So using, he was very angry, <clears throat> and using his power, he caused a large boulder that was on top of the cliff to fall down on them. And it would have killed them if Guru Nanak had not put his hand up and stopped it. Okay, And Master Kripal has explained that that boulder with Guru Nanak's palm print on it is still at that place next to that spring in the Punjab and is a great uh, place of Sikh pilgrimage, although it's now in Pakistan. Both Master Kripal and Sanji have told this story. Anyway, um, Guru Nanak stopped the boulder, um, but Vali Kandari understood that he had more power than he did, so he repented. And Guru Nanak initiated him. And after he initiated him, he made him his representative in that area and told him to put people on the path. Now, that ending, this actually is a number of stories in the literature that are like that. That ending always struck me as extremely compelling. This is Guru Nanak's interest in Vali Kandari, who after all has tried to kill him and has denied water to him and his that a human being can be given. Guru Nanak dealt with it by A, initiating him, and B, by making him his representative. There are, there are many stories like that, actually. There was a, a bandit who used to live outside Baba Sawan Singh's Dera in Bayas, who used to rob disciples. I mean, he, he preyed on the disciples who were going to see the Master in a very really kind of horrendous way. He robbed them, he threatened them, occasionally he even murdered them. And uh, he also used to abuse the master. Then one day he repented. He suddenly saw things differently. He went down on his knees before Master Sawansing. Master Sawansing accepted his repentance and initiated him. And he became a Sevadar at the Dera the very same person who used to prey on the disciples now became their servant. This is so counter to the way most of us would think that a rational person would deal with this stuff, that, that there's almost nothing to grab onto. But it makes sense if we understand that the master's main concern with any individual is to take them up. He is not interested in punishing. You know, Mahatma Gandhi said in one, one place, in connection with methods and all that, do we fight to change things or do we fight to punish? As for myself, I am such as we are all such sinners that I think it's best to leave punishment to God. Really, that's the master's attitude. Once the person has changed, he will grab onto that give them the connection that makes it possible for them to consolidate the change, to build on it, and then give them a position of responsibility so that they will be compelled to stay within the four walls of the new life. Sometimes, I mean, if we think, when Baba Sawan Singh went to 
Syed Kasran, which was Master Kripal Singh's hometown, also now in Pakistan. It was then in the Punjab part of India. He did an initiation, and uh, a large number of people were initiated. And later at that day at a meeting, um, the village schoolmaster said to Baba Sawan Singh, it's, it's all very well that you initiate people, but would it not be better if you only initiated the deserving? Apparently, somebody, maybe more than one somebody, had been initiated that the schoolmaster didn't approve of. At least that's the impression I get from the story. Baba Sawan Singh replied, I will tell you that when I was initiated by Baba Jamal Singh, I was not deserving. And he meant it. There is no way to deserve, and therefore there are no grounds for finding fault with others who in our eyes don't deserve. From the Master's point of view, we are all potential rescuees. Okay? He wants to take us up Give us that which we were born to have. This is the ultimate manifestation of love because it is the love from our inmost and deepest self calling to us. He wants to give that to us so that we can make full use of our human birth. And that's what he cares about. Everything that he does with us, everything that he says to us, the bhajans that he writes, the books that he writes, the letters that he writes, are all written from this point of view. I want to take this person, A, B, C, or D, up and put them in the lap of God, which is their birthright. That's what they were born to have by nature of their human existence. And that is what I want to do with them. That is how my love for them, the Master could say, manifests itself. And whatever we do that makes it easier for him to do that, either with us or with somebody else, helps him as it becomes a real and genuine seva because it is an active and material help in his work. That is why he issues circulars which say the things we can do to help him not get sick because, of course, the master's illness is normally the result of the karmas of the people that he initiates. We pay some of our karmas, but remember his aim is to take us up. If he let us pay off all our karmas, many of us, maybe not everyone, but many of us would take us a very long time indeed to get past that. Okay, this day can be so enormously blocking. So he takes on that, that much of our karmas which would prevent us from being able to practice the path sufficiently so that we can make progress. And that, of course, results in illness. Excuse me. And if, uh, if we understand this and do not do those things which produce the karmas that he has to take on so that we can keep on going and not get discouraged, then um, is that not a help? I think it's an enormous help, but sometimes hard to see things that way. Anyway, the point is, you know, that um, what the Master is giving us makes everything else possible. And um, if, you know, we find that we don't do it very well, we shouldn't be hard on ourselves. 
Hey, the master doesn't love us one bit less because we don't do it well. He means, you know, if you go to India and we sing bhajans in front of him, every single bhajan, normally, he will say two words at the end. Everyone knows, Bhotacha. Okay? Very good. Papu invariably translates them. Very good. Even if the bhajan has been, you know, mangled and mauled and, and totally and forgotten, which happened not long ago when Judith and I were mangling one, we totally forgot what we were doing and lost the tune and hadn't been prepared sufficiently. We, I, he had said nobody should sing if they weren't prepared. We decided we weren't prepared, and then he called on us without our hands being up. And then we forgot the tune in the middle of the bhajan. Anyway, the point is that you can do that. He still said bhotacha, you know, even after that. Uh, truthfully, what count, with the bhajans and with him, what counts is the doing. Not, it's the, what we say in educational jargon, you know, the process, not the product, okay? He wants us to work hard at them, and he wants us to, to actually go ahead and sing them. He does not care if we sing them well or not, but he does care that we sing them and that we do our best to sing them well. But once that's been done, we have prepared them and we do our level best, what he gets is the love that we put into it. And that is what he is responding to with Bhotacha. And through, it's like that in everything. You know, there's a, a famous story of Lord Krishna who went to see a disciple uh, whose name I've forgotten. Um, I'll remember it before the story's out. But he was not at home. His wife was there. And his wife was a really devoted devotee of Lord Krishna, loved him very dearly. And the fact that he was actually at her house was just blew her mind. She was bathing, but when he when she realized it was him, she came bombing out of the house to start naked, which is very much of a no-no, maybe more in India than here, maybe. Anyway, he he gently advised her to go back and get some clothes on. And then she invited him in and she prepared a meal for him. She gave him a banana, but she was so intoxicated with love that she gave him the peel and threw away the fruit. And he ate it. Then she prepared rice pudding, but she, again, was so totally oblivious to everything else that she put salt in it instead of sugar and he ate it and her husband came home and he realized what had happened he tasted the pudding he saw the the, the peeled banana lying in the garbage and uh, he said you idiot you've done everything wrong you have given you have given the Lord the peel and thrown away the fruit this and that thing. And Lord Krishna said, well, Vijay, whatever his name was, you, the fruit that she has given me, the peel that she has given me, was more delicious than the fruit that you have just given me. Because when I ate the peel that she gave me, I tasted her love. And this is why, you see, we can succeed on the path. It's why it's not hopeless and in beyond our grasp. Because what is required is the love that makes everything else possible. And that we can all have. You know, that the woman who did everything wrong was not different from us. It's just that she had been touched, the love in her soul had been touched by the love in the master's soul. And she was responding to that. And that can happen to any of us. And and I would venture to say that it probably has happened to most of us at one time or another. The problem is that we can't always re retain it. But 
it is certainly the more it happens, the more retainable it becomes, of course. That love is what makes it work, and that is, is possible for everyone. But if we judge ourselves, if we do what the Master refuses to do, if we judge ourselves and blame ourselves, not in the sense of keeping the diary and noticing objectively what we are doing wrong that is a problem and that will stand in our way, but in the way of piling guilt on our heads in huge blankets and not being able to see past it and assuming that it will always be like that, then uh, we don't, um, we're not able to make use of the love that we already have. So this it is a path of love and the love that as Master Kripa used to say it is he that first loves us our love is reciprocal the Master comes down and I I do think if we study the Gospels for example we should be aware that dying for people is not the hard thing for a master to do because dying involves going back to the lap of the father and not having to mess around with the difficulties of the physical plane anymore. It may be humiliating and painful in terms of the physical plane, but in fact, the Master generally welcomes it. Master Kripal Singh used to say, he would quote Malana Rumi, who was dying, and his disciples were weeping and wailing, and Malana Rumi said, who are you weeping for? If you're weeping for me, don't, because I'm extremely happy. I will soon be with my father, and it will be a lot better for me than it is here. If you're weeping for yourselves, that's another thing. From the Master's point of view, dying is not the thing that's hard. It's living that's the thing that's hard. It's being born into the physical universe. If you know the, the, um, the second chapter of Philippians, very famous, actually it's a hymn of great ancientness. It says he was accounted equal with God, yet leaving all that, he emptied himself into the human form, even unto death, yea, death on the cross. The death is seen as part of the whole there, as part of the humiliation. When the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us, there is a humiliation implicit in that, which is the, perhaps the key to understanding the, what it is that the Master does for us. And the dying is only a part of that. It's an important part, maybe, but it's only a part. And... We should realize and see that the, the whole life of the Master is a gift. You know, as Master Kripal said at one point, that he gives us God as a prashad. Really, a prashad is anything that the Master gives us. That's the Altarini's gift of grace. It's connected, it's comparable to the Greek word charis, which is translated grace in the New Testament and from which our word charisma comes. It's a question of, um, of a gift. Okay? The food that the Master has blessed is one kind of prashad, but the word can be applied in a lot of ways. And uh, he said that he gives us God as a gift, as a prashad to us, the ultimate prashad. But because he's able to do that because he has already given his life as a gift to us, as a prashad to us. And what he gives is, of course, his own living impulse. 
you know, that which opens us up, has the potential to open us up to the depths of the universe. Both Judith and I are very happy to have been here with you these last couple of days, and we feel that pleasure is ours. We have a great sweetness and grace here, and it is very nice to see all of our brothers and sisters whom we love and to um, see the Master's love working amongst all of us. And we are grateful to have been asked and uh, happy to have been able to participate in what has been going on. There's, okay, there's Prashad, and maybe we could sing a bhajan while we give out the Prashad. <laughs> 